Roots of Liberty 4. We're in episode 9. This is Joseph. And this is Isaac. Hi, Isaac. The name of the episode today are They Are My Slaves, the Judaic Roots of Liberty and Modernity. Yes, in which we deal with the question, what did the Jews do for liberty? Now, I the title is Judaic, using the term Judaic rather than Jewish because the... Um, because the things that originated in the Jewish homeland and in the Jewish diaspora, those ideas very soon spread uh, beyond them. And when they spread, they mutated and changed it and changed like all ideas. So we should talk about so there are ideas which are properly Jewish, ideas that Jews uh, believed and created and. Uh, and um, and lived by, and the ideas which are Judaic, which are inspired by, by by those Jewish ideas, and and all those ideas find their way into uh, into our modern notion of liberty. Just like there's a difference between Greek and Hellenistic, and there's a difference between um, Germanic and and uh, and post. Um, in, in in medieval there's also a, a difference between Jude- Jewish and Judaic so let's talk about it so let me do one of my grand oversimplifications that I think I have something of reputation for and that is when we speak about the Jewish influence let us just say that we speak of the modern time as you say and we speak of Christianity mm-hmm. so the Jews before Christianity are limited to the Jewish people mm-hmm. as a people and to the state in the geographic confines of Israel with something spreading outward but not so much especially into the heart of the West and by West we mean Rome and Greece and so on but then with the advent of Christianity all of a sudden you have the entirety of Christianity which is a little bit Jewish let me actually have a quote by Bertrand Russell maybe I'll do it uh, give it longer justice in a moment but let me just say the first sentence. He says, The Catholic Church was derived from three sources. Its sacred history was Jewish, its theology was Greek, its government and canon law were, at least indirectly, Roman. So you see, the great, the greatest edifice of the West in the past 2,000 years, Christianity, is in this uh, Russell's paradigm, at least a third Jewish. Um, and then, because modernity, I would argue, is a great extent a function of and a creation by Christianity one would say or Christian Europe another would say but either one of those two options therefore to that extent that those two things are Jewish modernity itself is Jewish that's for the oversimplification and but when we speak about modernity this show itself is mostly interested in liberty in modernity although modernity in general is interesting so this is why when we speak about the awesome influence of, of Judaism especially on the subjects that we're speaking about on this show, we have this in mind. So having kept all that in mind, what more could you tell me about the early onset of Judaism and how it influenced Christianity? Well, we can talk about um, how we are going back to the Bronze Age because and to the fall of the Bronze Age and to those Bronze Age states which survived, Egypt among them. Now... Egypt did not survive the, the fall of the Bronze Age unscathed. They were, it was greatly weakened. 
it never ever had influence uh, above north of um, of uh, north of what is now Israel it never again had direct dominion over anything north of the Sinai Peninsula um, and it suffered of course it's a question of how you define direct dominion but you can say that no more there were no more pharaohs going and into uh, into war expeditions and uh, in uh, imposing the direct will upon the people of let's say Asia Minor that was completely lost uh, after that was completely lost and it was also internally weakened and it it was opened to the invasion of all sorts of tribes among them are tribes that ca- that came from what is now the Arabian Peninsula or either the, the south of it or the north of it or the center of it and they invade through what is now Israel and through the and through the Sinai Peninsula and those tribes speak a language group which we call Semitic we call they call the Semitic after Sam or Shem the uh, the son of Noah um, and we call it that because uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, when all the nations are listed and the descent from the sons of Noah, from the sons of Noah, Sem is listed as the father of the Hebrews and of the and of the Akkadians and other peoples that uh, all spoke uh, Semitic languages. So it cle- it's clear that uh, that these that these people had a sense of being. Um, related to each other, related to each other. Um, the the exception are the Can the Canaanites, but or the Phoenicians, as they they were later became known by the uh, by the Greeks. But they, um, but that makes sense since those came actually to conflict uh, with the Hebrews later, and uh, it's. It's not clear what uh, it's not clear the that early history of the Semitic peoples of the Middle East is not very clear because they didn't write much down. Uh, we don't know uh, how and when and who arrived first at uh, at written language and at alphabet and at right. So we can't see much of it. The important thing is that at a certain point there is a group of uh, Semitic uh, slaves in Egypt, and they are uh, leaving Egypt, and Egypt is left much weakened. Of course, that's the story of the Exodus, in which the in which the Torah gives us the story of how God saves that group of uh, of Semitic slaves, and brings and promises to bring them to the land of their fathers, the, the land of, they call the land of the Hebrews, but which is uh, settled by the Canaanites, and then he grants them victory over said Canaanites, and and they dwell in the land, and uh, and uh, they sin against, the, against, the, against God, who brought them up from Egypt, from uh, the house of slaves, and he... Uh, and as a and as a punishment, he brings upon them foreign conquerors and oppressors. But since they repent every time, the he, and since he has a deep uh, connection with them, 
he always rescued them from their own and from the enemies and from their own follies and and this is the story of uh, of of the bible essentially this is the story of the nation of israel and this is the story of the jews because of course jews is a contraction of the word judaeus which is latin for judean or somebody from the tribe of judah which is the last Jew- israelite tribe to maintain uh, its identity and its political independence and its hold on the land after uh, the Assyrians destroyed the northern Israelite kingdom containing most of most tribes and most of the wealth and most of the power and and the only the, the southern kingdom of Judah containing the ancient royal house of David and the the holy site of the temple of the temple uh, survives for for a hundred years or so and then it is destroyed and they go in exile into the Babylon into Babylon and then they return to the land and rebuild and rebuild the the temple and the state and their nation and and the question is because from this point on the Israel the the Israelites the Jewish remnant of the Israelites will never have full political independence of full political independence they would forever they would up until fairly recently there was no fully independent jewish state with besides a short interval uh during the hashmonian period but the, but that period uh but the, but the hashmonian dynasty spent a large amount of time at the at its beginning pretending to be a seleucid vassal after rebelling against the seleucids and uh and sometime at the end of tail end of it being de facto roman vassal um so the question is but the pro- the question is how come a nation that, that did not have uh political independence since the since before since a uh, hundred years before socrates could teach us about liberty directly unless we are talking about the cautionary tale and the answer is because Jewish liberty is not about uh, maintaining political independence. It it will take it if it can, but Jewish liberty is focused on the individual and on the community. And it's not the community embodied by the state, but it's the community sh- as a shield against the state. And that is be- as a community, as the small bubble within the state that allows the individual to live up to his duties and to his conscience and to his heritage beautiful let me bring in the quote or the official Isaac quote of the episode and then we're in episode 9 uh, go back to our earlier episode where we talked about Bronze Age Egypt and so on you'll find it edifying for this episode as well where we t- touched upon that and our quote is from Leviticus 25:55. The for the sons of Israel be my servants, which I led out of the land of Egypt. I am your Lord God. So let's speak a little bit about slavery, uh, Jews as slaves, Jews owning slaves. Uh, let me, by way of introduction, bring the story of the awl. Does anybody know what an awl is? Awl, a w l, is this type of tool you use to, you know, you use it 
pierce things or bump into things and use it to kind of pierce the slave or, or make a notch in the slave's ear. It's, it's hard to know how much you have to actually penetrate. If a Jewish slave, uh, who is a, a Jewish slave and a Jewish master, uh, stays around after he's supposed to leave on the seventh year, and he says, well, I had it so good in my current master, I want to stay here till the Jubilee. Until, I, until the 49 years. If I'm not mistaken, the formula is, uh, I have loved my master, I, I have loved my wife, my sons, my master and my home, I shall not go free. Yeah, so this is a Jewish slave saying he wants to stay within within uh, servitude to his master, so he's, his ear is penetrated by the all, and the reason for that is we're telling him, you didn't listen. Like, when did you not listen? You did not listen to God when he gave the Torah to the Jews, that God said, you should be my slaves and not slaves to other slaves. So here itself, we see in this ritual, and in all the different aspects that we mentioned therein, getting freed after seven years, getting freed after 49 years, this idea within Judaism that A, if we'll have slavery, we'll be severely regulated, we'll have slaves that are so happy they want to stay on because they're going to have wives and children, and they have homes, and they have all sorts of benefits. So tell us a little bit in that respect, uh, perhaps, about slavery. Just a point, just a point that the... Uh, the text, the plain text says that after the alling ritual the slave stays le'olam, forever, which is the common, which is the way in Hebrew you say forever but the uh, Jewish tradition said that no he cannot say forever, he must say until the year of jubilee in which the uh, in which the Torah says that upon the year of jubilee, which occurs every 49th years or every 7 or every 7 sabbatical years, um uh, all slaves must be set free. So, there's a contradiction. On one hand, so actually there are three contradictions. The one contradiction is, because you said that a slaves go, go home every seven years, unless he's an old slave, old A-W-L-E-D slave, uh, which, which stays, quote-unquote, forever. On the other hand, you said that all slaves must be turned to their master upon the day of Jubilee. So who needs to go to Jubilee? If it's a regular slave, he would go at the end of his contract. If it's, a, if it's an old slave, then he would never go. So the tradition explains that, indeed, uh, forever does not mean forever, but to wait 49 years or to wait decades for your liberty is such a long time that it might as well be forever. And remember, human lifespan back in the day were not what they are now. Nasty, brutish, and short, as Thomas Sowell says. Yes. Uh, e even though uh, sl slavery in slavery in uh, in Jewish law is very highly regulated, not only in its duration but also in its nature. Uh, a Jewish a Jewish master cannot sell sell his Jewish slave to another to another person. He, uh, even a foreign slave cannot be sold outside of the land of Israel to a foreign land. And if he does, he automatically becomes free. Um, uh, no slave, foreign or, foreign or Israelite, may be beaten to the degree that he, lose, that he loses the use of one of, his, of one of his limbs or, the, or one of his fingers even. If he does, he, uh, if he, does, he, go, he goes free. Um... Um, oh, so if he gets his tooth knocked out. So. He gets tooth knocked out. As, as you can see, uh, the Torah systematically deprives the master of any and all ways to discipline his, his slaves. 
all the while uh, positively commands him to give the slave everything and that is every condition that the master enjoys and the uh, n limits the, uh, the 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 amount of time and the kind of service that the, the slave may perform so we can uh, we should ask and this is if a slave which is if slavery is so limited is even slavery or or are we just using the wrong term but this is what we should say we should say but the question is why because slavery in the torah is either a, a punishment of for theft specifically theft no other no no debt and no other condition or uh or it is a voluntary state and the um in which somebody sells himself for for servitude and the question is why is it so limited the answer is because slavery is obnoxious to the spirit of the jewish law the jewish law recognizes it but it's obnoxious to it it's obnoxious to the jewish law the idea that a person may be uh held in servitude to another person not because it's find servitude obnoxious but it's human servitude the basic idea of jewish law and of jewish theology is that israelites uh as a god's slave and it's not because of some lofty of some lofty idea that everybody is god's slaves no it's because uh god describes himself in the torah as going to war with pharaoh he adopts and he adopts the uh the conve- the conventional rules of war the to the victor goes the spoils he go- went to war with pharaoh over the israelite he emphatically won the war therefore the israel the israelites are now his slaves just like they were pharaoh's slaves before now we should ask the question how come this how does this lead leaves lead us to liberty and the answer is simple if you are the slave of god and god alone then admitting to be the slaves of anybody else either by actually selling yourself to slavery or by admitting a slave like uh submission to another to a human being is sacrilegious especially as judaism is a fiercely monotheistic religion to the degree that everything that is done to honor god is at least suspicious when it's done to honor man yes yes and at the risk of getting teensy weensy little political um a couple years ago when it was all the rage for people to you know bend their knee at certain riots let's say and so on uh, i heard a certain british commentator say that he only bends the knee to god and king Mm. and that's a a british one because there are you know still the king there so therefore it would make sense you bend in judaism you would only bend your knee to god and i think if you're if you're taking that sort of uh, subversive servile attitude and transferring it for where it belongs towards god and putting it to, towards a person then you are in fact not just doing something unwise and and politically moronic you're almost doing something blasphemous almost you were in fact well that's why i leave the theology to you mm-hmm. uh, isaac <laughs> <laughs> you as we spoke in a previous episode isaac has the long beard and i think if that doesn't establish uh, 
theological blind fights. <laughs> <laughs> what can? Mm. Mm. So, we will see you again on the other side of the next segment. We're in episode 9 of the Iron Rod podcast. Let Hi, this is Joseph, and we're up to the next segment of episode 9 of the Iron Rod podcast. I'm here with Isaac. Now that we have mentioned the uh, what is at the basis of Jewish idea of liberty, how does Jewish liberty actually look in practice? Now, the Jewish community, um, according to the old sources, um, and it doesn't matter if we are talking about a cake Israel, which is what I which is what we will call the uh, the period covered by uh, by the Bible, also sometimes called uh, the era of Judges and the era of the First Temple. Or we are talking about um, the Greco-Roman era, or which we should add to the Persian the Persian era to this. Or we are talking about uh, the Middle Ages or the post-Roman era. Uh, because in all these cases, Jews always enjoyed greater freedoms than their neighbors, even when their neighbors were the dominant uh, political group. And the reason is because Jews believed they were free. And this is a very powerful thing. And what are the practical implications of it? So, in the Judges era, uh, as the book of Judges said, says tells us at the end of it uh, and at those days there is no king in Israel each man did what he thought fit in his own eyes now that sounds like anarchy a bit like anarchy but you can see that people did when judges were around and judges were not just judicial people they were also military leaders people went to them and they adjudicated cases before them but if you examine the story of each and every single judge most of them did not have much political power they are they didn't have standing armies they didn't have uh they didn't have a court that uh in with officers to to force people no they militarily they relied on uh raised on armies raising raised from the populace for a specific battle when the, and and for the authority they rely on their charisma and on their reputation for being um fair judges of human affairs either in milita- military affairs or judicial affairs as far as politically is concerned i would say this was not an unalloyed good in fact i would say politically this is a disadvantage as well but from the point of view of individual liberty this is tremendously positive Yes, but you can tell how come Jew- Israelite society did not tear itself apart. Well, it did, at least twice. Because where once was when Gideon, uh, not Gideon, sorry, uh, Yifatah, uh, one of the judges, uh, went after a war. He went into a dispute with uh, the tribe of, of Ephraim, which uh, were angry 
that they did not receive their fair share in the glory uh, in the war. Uh, and the other one, most disastrous one, was when a local dis dispute over, over the rights of guests um, uh, on the principal settlement of the tribe of Benjamin caused such an uproar among, uh, among the rest of, of Israel that uh, a civil war ensued in which uh, the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out. And this is the conclusion of the author of the book of Judges that this was not good. His conclusion is that such uh, that while there is something uniting all the tribes of Israel, which are uh, mostly uniform ethical uh, standards, don't, uh, for instance, don't uh, touch uh, somebody's wife, especially if not if he's a guest. Um, if uh, if a tribe or a, or, or a settlement protects uh, a group of criminals and refuse to give them over to ju to judgment by uh, judges chosen by the victim, then uh, this uh, this tribe is implicated in the uh, in the in the crime and, and so on. But it was not much, and those are. Uh, ethical and legal precepts which were common to all Israelites since there was no central authority to refer to apart from the uh, from the uh, from the tabernacle of God um, there was no it, it's very often passion often rose over disputes because if everybody obeys the same law but nobody can have the final say over uh adjudicating the law then you have two people who you can have two people in two groups who, be, who both believe that they are completely in obedience with the law and that the other side is completely wrong if not criminal and of course uh, passions that come in over disputes of ideology are much worse than ones that are merely about interest yeah so hence we have the aforementioned story which they cut the poor lady into little pieces and they sent her all over the place. This is the story that you're referring to? Yes, absolutely. Um, as a as a way of demonstrating that she had been mistreated and a way of galvanizing support. Which uh, let's let's make make it clear. In the war. Make let's make it clear. Uh, she was raped and murdered, or and uh, and her and her husband as a way to rally all the tribes of Israel to his cause and seek justice. He cut her bodies in twelve parts. And send them to all tribes. So, and yeah, and then the then there was a massive war, and the Benjamins, as you mentioned, were Benjamites, Benjaminites were were decisively defeated, and yeah. tens of thousands of people fell. Yeah. So this is this is the uh, kind of the dark ages of 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 uh, of the Jews. Uh, to give some some dates, some so ten, tenuous dates to some of the uh, broad strokes you gave before. Let me just give it from beginning to end. So, if the exodus of Egypt happened around 3,300 years ago, uh, immediately following that is the era of Judges until David, around 900 to 1,000 BC, approximately. Which is approximately the age of the Homeric, in which the Homeric epics are taking place. And then, uh, 300 or so years later, the Jews are defeated by the Assyrians, and subsequent 100 years after that, the temple is destroyed, and then in the 
around the age of Socrates, the Jews are rebuilding the temple, and then the Hellenic Jewish age could kind of start, or the kind of the flashpoint could be the Maccabee revolt, and that's let's say 165 BC is the Hanukkah story with the Maccabees defeating the Seleucids, let's say, and then 70 AD is the destruction of the temple, and then you know Rome falls. 400 years after that, uh, that starts the Dark Ages. So as we're going to be going through the wide sweep of Jewish history a little bit on this episode, because we're speaking about the Jewish effect on history and um, Christianity, modernity as it pertains to liberty, I thought we would give that foundation. Yes. <clears throat> and so, uh, how does it look like... So eventually the Jews are crowning kings, but those kings don't really have that much power. Uh, Saul doesn't have appear, first of all no Jewish king appears to have any sorts of uh, normal tax system or at least an orderly tax system up until Solomon who actually creates uh, a different division um, he divides Israel into 12 parts but not to the tribes which remains uh, a parallel system but to under his 12 superintendents which all happen to be his son-in-laws and, and was this for the 12 months of the year? Yes, and each month... I always thought that that idea was either genius or, or you know, Bronze Age, uh, you know, ridiculous. Well, the idea was that each of them would provision the, the, the royal court for, for one month. Uh, which means that the rest of the month and, and all... Uh, and the money and resources for projects, for royal projects, was supposed to come from... Uh, from... Uh, from other nations and tribes which submitted to Solomon's authority externally to Israel. Nevertheless, when he died, this, this system, which is very light, actually, if you consider uh, the, the size of Israel and the fertility of the land, and uh, you would c consider that and the actual amount of, uh, of, uh, of taxes that are, that are delineated to us in the Book of Kings, it, and that each territory was uh, was taxed for only one month out, out of the year, um, it should be very light. Nevertheless, under his son, um, ten tribes rebel because the taxes are, t uh, 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 the taxes are too high. Yes, so we're just supposed to tell you that people are going to complain about high taxes no matter what, the moment they smell uh, any sort of weakness, which they did in the case of the son. So Solomon and... Um, we should say in passing, and this will be a way to bring in another Jewish king that you want to bring in. The Solomon, who is Solomon and David, King David are the greatest Jewish kings. David represents a bit more uh, the passion, the spirit, and the, the warrior, the general, the conqueror, and of course his earlier era of, of being in flight and so on. And Solomon, although there are references in the homiletic sources, we only really see him as the king. Uh, from beginning to end, they only see him as the emperor in, in security and prosperity, and he's so rich that he's, you know, trading in the Indian Ocean, possibly, and so on. So Solomon, the, we are told in the Jewish sources, is ruler of the world, or of the known world in his little area. And another king, that's a few hundred years later, is also the ruler of the world, and he is King Ahab, King Ahab. And King Ahab is some sort of an anti-Solomon in the way, in Jewish... Uh, folklore because he is very powerful 
But as the as uh, the Book of Kings uh, gives gives him to us, he's a wicked king, and he's wicked because he uh, he introduced the uh, the worship of the Baal again to, to northern Israel. Uh, that's um, which, according to the Book of Kings, hitherto uh, the main problem from the point of view of of devout um, worshippers of of the God of Israel is that they are worshiping the uh, the golden calves with uh, the founders of the founder of the northern kingdom uh, created as a counterweight to the um, to the temple in Jerusalem. But those northern calves supposed to represent God. God the uh, God the bringer of plenty and prosperity. God the bringer of peace because the calf and God the big the bringer of new beginnings because the calf is of course a young a young bull. It's a bull that was just born and of course it's supposed to say we hope that God would bless our new endeavor of starting a new kingdom and leaving the old house of David behind. Um, the God of the Jews wasn't thrilled with these calves, oh, no, and every king who didn't so much as lift a finger to remove them is considered as if he himself is guilty of putting them there. Yes, and as a matter of fact, the the, the early dynasties of uh, of the Jews, uh, first of all, the dynasty of Jeroboam who founded the kingdom, uh, and the dynasty of Jehu, uh, not not of Jehu of Basha that came after it, uh, perished perish violently within two generations then come uh, a very uh, confusing line of usurpers one of them lasting no more than three months before some before they are uh, he's been burnt inside the inside the royal uh, palace charming um, in in Bethel but then rises the house of Omri and the house of Omri is the most stable uh, here to form most stable northern royal house and it's a very military house. The uh, the founder is, as a matter of fact, started his career as the master of the horse, and and his son and his son Ahab is, of course, the king we're all talking about. He's the he's the uh, the sinful he's the sinful powerful king, and as a matter of fact, he's so so sinful and powerful that when he that when he desires somebody's landed estate he does something scandalous shocking unheard of he goes and he goes and he tries to, to negotiate a real estate deal which is simply not done in ancient israel in ancient israel you do not sell your ancestral estate you keep it in the family you give it away to your son at most at the very very most you uh you lease it out for an, until the jubilee, but then but then you return it, and this is an act of deep, deep, deep shame. You don't do these kind of things unless you outright exhausted all other options. And King Ahab, this powerful king, and we know that he was a powerful king from archaeological resources. We found out that he was part, if not the center, of the coalition for the Assyrians at Karka. Long story. Um. He goes there and he tried to negotiate with a man named Naboth. Naboth, uh, the Israelite. Not it's not the Israelite with I S R A E L. It's the Israelite with a Z because he's from a specific place in Israel called Israel. It's it makes more sense in the Hebrew. I promise you. And Naboth and he asked actually for to buy a vineyard from him 
to make it into a, into a, a garden for greenery, which means it's not really, it doesn't really mean to buy the whole estate, just a little, just a little bit, just a little bit to to create a, a royal park of some sort. And Naboth is deeply offended by the suggestion. How can I sell the land of my fathers, etc., etc.? And he gives him the whole, the usual the, the usual speech. And Ahab, the powerful, sinful, terrible tyrant, does something shocking. Unthinkable, scandalous. He goes home, go to bed, lie, uh, lies down, and refuses to talk to his wife, who is even more powerful and more evil than him. And if you're familiar with a left-wing uh, rag called Izevel, then you should know that she's named after that. That, that paper is named after this. The paper is named evil, Jezebel. Jezebel after this very evil queen. Yes, and the and she's not. By the way, the the reason the. Jezebel became a term for, of abuse to uh, to a woman who uh, who is wicked. It's not because Jezebel was uh, was a particularly um, um, fem. She won't be a, a feminist icon because she always uses the power her husband's power and let and her husband who is dominated by her um, and she um, uh, that ended up doing her will, but. Feminism, uh, by what I understand it, is supposed to be about women going out there and acting on their own. But she doesn't do, uh, but the things she was pushing him to do are not things that strengthening the kingdom. She's not the reason he was good military commander. That obviously came, came for him from his, father's leg- from his father's legacy. His father was a brilliant military commander. Um, and, and I find hard to believe that she was with him on a, on a military expedition, but... She always pushes him to do things that actually weaken him as a king and weaken the kingdom. Because she tells him, you Israelite, do- oh, and she's a foreigner. She's, she's, a, she's a Phoenician princess for, for, uh, from Tyre, or was Sidon from Phoenicia. And, and she tells him, now you will show, now you will make kingship in Israel. Now, it wasn't the kingship in Israel. He's literally a king. But she means, you Israelites don't know what kingship is. I'll teach you what. So she assembles a court and she hires fa- false witnesses. They, they all say that Naboth did something terrible. He blasphemed against against King and God, by uh, and uh, and the court con and the court find him guilty, of course, because the ju- because judges and, and witnesses are both bought and paid for, and uh, and 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 Naboth is executed and 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 Ahab comes to to take to confiscate his his assets and he and and now he gets his uh his patch of greenery and then he meets the prophet elijah now let's talk about prophecy in ancient israel prophecy in ancient israel is there are a bunch of uh people devoted to god and they wander around the countryside and the and the urban landscape uh, uh telling people god uh God demands, God demands such and such. God is displeased with you. God and they often perform miracles for people, and they are, and they often. There are sometimes judges, like you mentioned, the Samuel yes. being. And they are highly revered. They are highly revered because they are more often than not what they say actually come true. They prophesy a plague. A plague comes. They prophesy a bountiful harvest. A bountiful harvest. Sh- 
surely comes. And Elijah was one of the most uh, well-respected prophets. And he is waiting to Ahab in the newly confiscated garden, vineyard. And he tells him, do you think to murder and to inherit too? And he gives him a prophecy or that his dynasty would die out, that he himself would die an ignominious death and his dynasty will die out shortly after. And this is what kingship was under the most powerful king, the most powerful, uh, guilty and, and, uh, and heartless king of Israel. This is how powerful kingship was. The king literally has to, uh, to negotiate for a real estate deal, like uh, to a real estate deal. And when he does do something that, that Pharaoh would have done without even thinking, uh, he uh, he have a public pronu- uh, pronouncements against him and, and the curse of the Lord is laid against him. So this is how Jews view kingship and liberty and, and the rights of the of even the common of the indiv- of the individuals and the common man. And here is our movie trailer. This is a short piece of trailer. This is the Ben Hur movie, 1959. I've seen the original Ben Hur movie, 1959. I've seen the modern one. There is no comparison. Don't even bother watching the one that just came out. Although the chariot scene is pretty good. The old one. Have you seen the old Ben Hur movie, Isaac? I always wanted to see all of it, but I saw parts of it. the The book is also very good. Incredible book. I'm actually middle of it. I've I've read I've read the first part of it. Um, it's significant one of the lines he mentions there about your conquered people and that's what the Roman is saying to the Jewish prince this is uh, Judah Judah Ben-Hur and the Jews are maybe conquered by the Romans in terms of allegiance but their ideas lived on during that time whether or not they're under foreign subjugation and this show is often if not exclusively about ideas so that the strength is in their ideas and besides, and besides, Jews have no problem with being conquered. On, I mean, they would prefer not to be, but uh, but they don't think that being conquered means that they cannot that their freedom is dead in all aspects forever. They don't see themselves truly as slaves to people. They view their foreign yoke as insulting and blasphemous, and and it must be a special punishment from God because they for the many, many, many sins. And believe me, nobody is better at finding Jewish sins better than the Jews themselves. And the more devoted, patriotic they are, the more adept they are in finding their own 
and their their own sins and those of them of their fellow Jews. But they believe uh, we still constitute a political and a religious and a public community, a kahal, as, or crowd, as it's called in Hebrew, in uh, in legal terms. And we still have responsibilities towards each other. We have respons- We have fiscal responsibilities. We have to build, uh, to contribute to the defense of our of our communities and to the into the well-being of the poor and the widow and the orphaned. Um, and we have to uh, to see to the spiritual welfare of each other. We have to raise institutions of learning and of and of prayer and of charity and all the other things and we still have to live by our own moral code the moral code which the moral and legal code which God himself gave us that is the classical Jewish belief the fa- and the foreign rule while uh, they would some Jews would submit to foreign rule either by conquest or by ch- or because they choose to live in a different country and they would obey its rules and the good order of the society they live amongst, and they would honor the uh, and they would give that society that honor which they believe it deserves, uh, which may be very great or very little. Um, they would still Jews would still believe that the law of God comes before the laws of men, and they would never see themselves as slaves to anyone. By as a matter of principle apart from God at least that's the Jewish ethos yes um, alternatively or additionally the reason why the Jews are not that particularly bothered when they get conquered is that they trace their heritage back to Adam and Noah and Abraham they've been around so long so when they get conquered like eh, it'll be over in a few minutes you know a few eons and we'll We'll be on the other side of this yeah. and not our enemies. We went past Pharaoh, we'll, 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 we'll go past this. That is, that is, in fact, their belief. But now that we said our show is about ideas, what is our movie, our book recommendation, which I think has an idea or two that you could tell us about? Uh, our book recommendation is actually a very interesting one because it's a book that was not written by a Jew. Well, neither was Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is, it was written emphatically by a Christian from a Christian point of view. But this book was written by a man that may or may not have known Jews. I, pers- I personally, I don't know if he have, have known Jews. Sir Walter Scott. And the novel is obviously Ivanhoe. And the Jews in the... And the Jews in the novel are very poorly researched, I must admit. Because, uh, first of all, Isaac of York, the main Jewish character, is not... First of all, he doesn't cut a very attractive character. He's not supposed to. Um... And he constantly swears in the beard of Abraham and in the uh, and in Elijah's uh, left toe uh, and all these sort of things that is clearly inspired by Catholic uh, by, by Catholic medieval oaths by I swear by uh, g- by God's wounds etc. Et but uh, but nevertheless, it shows that Christians. Uh, it shows that in the Middle Ages there is um, a moment. There's a conflict throughout the Middle Ages. It's a silent conflict. It's not a conflict that is waged with swords or even with polemics. It's a conflict of two societies living side by side, uh, and one society bears no ill will, to, no particular ill will towards the other, 
but the other society is living in constant angst of the other and the, and the anxious society is not the, uh, the dominated subjugate society on the contrary it's the majority domineering and dominating uh, Christian society of Europe that is anxious and unsure about the Jewish minority that lives in Europe first Jewish minority Jews Jewish community existed in Europe since the days of the Roman Empire if the Roman went there there were Jews there and uh, so in, in many cases the Jews um, are those weird people very strange people who are who can live in a country way before the ancestors of the Christian noblemen uh, the Christian rules lived there think about the Jews of France who live who lived this since the days of the Roman Empire before the Franks appeared um, and nevertheless they see themselves they don't see themselves as Frenchmen or, the, or even Gauls they, uh, they emphatically say no our homeland our true real homeland is somewhere far away and in, uh, in the land of Israel and, uh, and they do see themselves as subjects of the king of France but they don't see him as the lord they don't see themselves as subjugated to him completely or even to the local lord they see themselves despite not being noblemen and they are very strange people because they are not noblemen but they are not they but they are not peasants or or priests or or swords for hire they are not even christian beggars they are non-christians they believe in a religion which is older than christianity and which gave birth to christianity and so it's really confounding the christians the jews are not confounded at all the christian the christians are just uh for the christians are just other people that that daily that they the jews happen to live on their lands and it's immaterial to the jew what the christian believe believe in as long as he's not a pagan because that have some implication on jewish law and Jew, and jews that actually lives among christians tend towards the idea that that christians are not as a matter of fact pagan we can um it's clearly visible in the opinion of uh rabbi J of Rabbeinu of Rabbeinu on, uh, on uh in his commentaries on talmud and uh, the uh, but the jews couldn't care less how the christian order his life all that he wants is to make his living to maintain his own little community and to live by the law of God and of course he would be a loyal and patriotic servant of the government but he will not be its slave he will not live in accordance with a code of morality not which is not his own which he did which he as an individual opposes and uh and which is opposing everything that he believes in so speaking of these dominating Christians, one of the stories that you brought to my attention is a very uh, classic one of Maram of Rottenberg, who was one of the foremost of the medieval uh, Jewish scholars. Yes, Maharam, or which is short for Morenu Arav Rabbi Meir, or our our teacher, the uh, our teacher, the Rabbi uh, Master Meir of Rottenberg. Uh, he's an interesting man because he was a very very prominent rabbi in the te- in uh, in the 10th century I believe 
or was it 11th century? The, during the dark of the Dark Ages. Uh, uh, 13th century. 13th century. I, 300, 300 years difference. What's some, what some darkness between friends. Yes. It, but it was still a very dark place. Well, we it call... Was, it was, this is Germany. So Germany wasn't, was, was still uh, a very uh, illiterate and, and kind of uh, peasant-like feudal society. Well, it was improving. Those who are called the High Middle Ages... Yes. But uh, for for a reason, it was improving. The entirety of Europe was improving. Uh, right. So he lived right before the, de- the Black Death, I would yeah. say. So uh, a certain Duke Leopold of Austria, who uh, just recently uh, took captive the King of England and forced him and forced him to pay truly, truly ridiculous ransom to uh, to go free. By the way, said King Richard of England. Uh, Richard Lionheart just returned from a somewhat successful crusade in the Holy Land. Uh, it didn't stop Duke Leopold from uh, from arresting him. There, there was official uh, Christian truce that was uh, supposedly observed by many, but not in this one case. Yes. That a, a, a crusading knight returning from the Holy Land could not be uh, waylaid on the way. Yes. And, and Richard Lionheart was illegally uh, imprisoned and his mother had to go around begging for money all over England uh, to raise his ransom, and which of course, he did successfully. And, and of course, his, his, mother, his mother, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, did not have to do much begging. As a matter of fact, she and his, uh, and his brother John uh, stripped the, the fixtures of certain churches to pay for the ransom. Anyhow, so Duke Leopold, who, uh, who just made a killing in the ransom business, in, in the kidnap and ransom business, Besides, this this Jew, the, he knew that there is this Jewish scholar which is held in very high esteem throughout Europe, and he thought this should be this should be even easier. I mean, when you kidnap the king of England, there's only a chance. There's always a chance that somebody somebody attempts something something um, uncomfortable, like a re, like a rescue mission or even a war. When you kidnap a Jew, what what are the risks exactly? And so he kidnaps uh, Rabbi Mayer of Rottenburg, and uh, and he puts them in jail, and of course he puts him for ransom because, and of course the Jews all over Europe starting to collect money, but Rabbi Mayer of Rottenburg says he sneaks out a letter out of prison, and he warns them to not pay his uh, his ransom because uh, the law, the Jewish Jewish law commands that captives should not be ransomed uh, for excessive amounts because that will incentivize uh, kidnappers to kidnap more Jews. And he said, I'm not, if you pay the ransom that he, that, that Duke Leopold is demanding, uh, no, no Jewish scholar in Europe would be safe. And besides, and, uh, and besides, as we just mentioned, it's strictly against the law, against Jewish law. So, he he is left uh, he is left in jail, and he dies in jail. When he dies, uh, the Jewish community manages to to pay some ransom for for his for his body, and that's the end of his story. But the interesting thing about my from Rottenburg, if we regard the uh, if we regard the uh, the administration of a of a community, a free community is that Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg issues uh, one of the many, many respo- legal responsa which he issues are 
is when he says it is our custom in all in all the lands which we know of and and nobody should change it that in every matter of tax of taxation we assemble all the uh, we assemble all heads of household which pay taxes to the community to the communal coffers and then they uh, they all swear that they all speak their mind for the sake of heaven and and then the uh, the decision is arrived by the majority vote I uh, I'm quoting from memory here uh, this is not a direct quote but this is essentially the arrangement which he testifies and urge everybody to adhere to this means that the Jews now urban communal co- communes with some sort of a of a voting of voting bodies are are not uncommon uh, in uh, in in the uh, in the medieval era but they're in decline in many places for example um, monasteries go from electing their own abbots to receiving to just affirming to just voting quote-unquote to the candidate chosen by the bishop or by the king if it's a particularly important uh, 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 monastery and uh, and then you have and eventually they go into abbots being appoint directly appointed by the bishop or by the king or by the or by the parent monastery um, urban communities are becoming more and more dominated by an elite which is not the same as the common citizen of the city it's uh, etc etc in and of course uh, peasant assemblies are, are completely uh, made away with with in most of Europe during the uh, during the Carolingian period um, but the Jews but the Jews are all members of a free community in which decisions are, are arrived at by majority vote and uh, but as a matter of law and not as a matter of a particular privilege granted to them by someone but as a matter of of as a matter of course this is the law this is the custom this is how we do things how do you want us to do things different because uh in jewish law the inhabitants of a particular city are all partners in the city just as they may be partners uh in a particular business enterprise and in and in partnership in business partnership one uh one all the partners one res- gets into a decision by asking all the partners and whatever the majority of the partners decide this is what is being done I- ironically one of the more uh christian institutions well, one of the most famous christian institutions in the world is the college of cardinals yes which votes by majority for the Pope oh yeah and this is not something that has been the history throughout the entirety of the uh, bringing a Pope uh, to the highest office I think it only became established in the 10th or 11th century so you would have this sort of vote that is true but remember that the Cardinals are, are consecrated by the previous Pope and they are not in a vote by a college of Cardinals which can be either very restrictive or very expansive depending on how many cardinals uh, the previous Pope had made 
uh, it's not the same as if the all the uh, the Christians in the world vote for a pope, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, there is an argu- there is an argument for for restricting who can decide who is the ne- who the next pope is, and I'm sure the Catholics have uh, have a reason to do the the way they do they do it, but. Um, it's not the situation with the Jews, with the Jewish communities, the Jewish communities in Europe, up until, basically, until now, always uh, were communal bodies in which decisions are arrived at through either vo- through votes, and the executive is always, el- and if there is an executive, it is always an elected one by majority vote of all members of the community in good standing. Yes, very, very fascinating. Uh, I mean, it does remind me a little bit of the, you know, Athenian system, where it's, you know, only free men are of, you know, that are citizens, not just all the riffraff. So only people, I think you said, that pay taxes or at least, you know, contributing members of the Jewish society are able to vote. Yes. Uh, by the way, I said men, but actually women too. We have records of, of women uh, voting in assem- voting in assembly. If those are women with independent wealth who are capable of paying taxes, because again, the Jewish community is a part is is maintained along the line of uh, communal business is business. It's the business of take of discharging public duties, which public individual duties towards the public, and so whoever contributes towards discharging those duties have a vote. Yes, amazing. Um, um, that that is in part the influence of the Jews on the on the Christians of this era. Uh, other things that were going on, which we won't get into, which uh, the Jewish messiahs are running around mm-hmm. that greatly confused and annoyed and terrified the Christians mm-hmm. and, and Muslims, but sometimes the Christians. Uh, you have the various uh, blasphemous groups that are heretical Christian sects that are in some respects closer to the Jewish original and that they uh, reject some of the more uh, some of the more different uh, Christian changes such as uh, the Trinity and, and other type things. Uh, you have a lot of phenomena going on uh, which I would suggest is, you know, does not change the calculus of it being the dominating and, and dominated part of society, but does make it more complex in terms of of what's going on. Uh, you ha- you have you know some Christians converting to Judaism, which really annoyed the Catholic Church and and, and the Christians and so on. Uh, also, something not mentioned is the Crusades. Uh, the Crusades were trying to go from Europe to Israel without the aid of Google Maps. The result of which is a uh, had no freaking clue how to get there and they would have to pass through much of Europe to do so and the crusading armies are actually more likely the camp followers that always emerge in the history of warfare to follow armies who would just pillage and rape and murder everyone in their way in this case of the Jews they're talking here of the first crusades and, and third crusades and so on uh, tens of thousands of Jews being killed by the crusading armies on their way to Jerusalem not not referring at all to the specific massacre that took place in Jerusalem when the first crusades 
won that city and killed 10,000 Jews, um, which was the Jews of Jerusalem at that time. Uh, so um, various things are going on in the interplay of Christianity and Judaism in the Dark Ages in Christian Europe. Uh, we don't have time to get to it all. Uh, any final thoughts on the subject before we end our episode 9, which we spoke about Judaism and some of its effect in Christianity, and we entitled They Are My Slaves, The Judaic Roots of Liberty and Modernity. So now that we mention it, we, we need to, to ask, how, how was the idea, if, it's all well and good that Jews have ideas about liberty and why they should not be the slaves of anybody else, because they, of any man, because they're already the slaves of God. The question is, since the Jews live in, as at least that's what the historical narrative went for until um, until some scholarship was, was made in the last few decades, um, that they lived in splendid isolation in their own little communities and they have very little effect on the world around them, apart from being uh, on the receiving end of said world. Um, how? What does it matter to us if the Jews believed in liberty? Those of us who don't happen to be Jews, who lived in modernity, which, as you said, is a product of Christianity. What? How do they benefit? Bene, how? How does the general Western world benefit from? It? The answer is first of all, uh, Christianity is a product of Jewish of first century Jewish culture, which was firstly, firstly, for the theology. Of liberty, as a matter of fact, there was a there was a sect going around called the Zealots that believed that any kind of state authority is blasphemous, and they were the most ardent fighters against the Romans. Um, um, and the Jew, in no, in no two communities that live right next to each other can live in splendid isolation. It's it's a it it cannot happen. It cannot happen, especially if those two communities trade with each other um, they, they they buy sell they they, they, they engage in they engage in business together they uh, one group at least have to go into the other group to advocate for the, for its existence and for and for and for not being uh, slaughtered or something given certain be, certain benefits and fa- uh, and favors from the local from local rulers uh, it, it cannot happen. That, that, that there's no uh, cur- mutual curiosity at all and there is no uh, interplay and there is no uh, mutual influence. Not to mention writing books that are being translated into the vernacular. Absolutely. And as a, as a matter of fact, one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest uh, theo- um, Christian theologians of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, um, quotes... Moses Maimonides is one of the greatest Jewish theologians of, of the Middle Ages extensively he called him Rabbi Moses he thinks uh, he doesn't mention his last name but he's, from the argument and from the quotes which he pulls directly from the vernacular Arabic in which Moses Maimonides wrote uh, he, uh, he, uh, he we know that he's talking about him uh, I think in our first episode we said that we're going to get back to Aquinas. Hopefully we'll have you more time to talk about him. Definitely a very fascinating person. And yes, uh, one of his most important theological um, positions stubbornly held of Aquinas, 
that you could only believe in God via negativa, that you cannot believe in positive attributes, but rather negative attributes. God is not the most powerful, but God is not lacking any power, rather, say the second way. That is strictly and wholly Maimonidean, although Maimonidean probably goes a step further than Aquinas mm -hmm. in, the, in the exact doctrine. So, tremendous influence on St. Thomas Aquinas, who was the most significant intellectual figure of the Dark Ages, definitely this, the most significant philosopher, doctor of the Church, and being influenced by the greatest Jewish philosopher, Maimonides. And yes, and the thing is, uh, so in Christianity, the, the basic idea is that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity, and in particular for the, for the, to end, to participate in this sacrifice, and to be redeemed from the sins using that blood. All you need is to believe in Jesus and to accept Jesus into your heart. So essentially, the Christian believed that uh, that all that Jesus died for all the Christians uh, and of course uh, uh, the Christian will say no he died for all for all mankind but in effect if only the Christians can benefit from it which medieval Christians were very adamant about I understand that there is some uh, dispute on the on this point among modern Christians um, which I will not get into uh, in effect, it means that all Christians are equal in the sense that they are all participating in the same sacrifice and drawing the same benefit and they're all coming to heaven. No matter their birth, no matter their status, they're still the same people. Uh, they're still the same... Uh, they're still on the same footing in, in the eyes of God. As Jesus said, and then, uh, that he doesn't see neither... Greek, nor Jew, nor slave, nor master. That, that was Paul, actually. That's Paul. Yeah, I mean to say. And the, the, the Christian uh, faith. Yes. And as a matter of fact, the earliest Christian, Christian assemblies, which are, of course, uh, illegal and are conducted in hiding, includes people with no personal liberty. It includes slaves. includes Roman women, which have very little amount of liberty at home. And... Uh, includes slaves, includes barbarians, includes all sorts of people which in the empire enjoyed neither political nor personal liberty. But the Christian thought is that uh, Jesus bought in his, with his blood uh, and with his sacrifice uh, liberty from sin and the grave and the devil, which is the best kind of liberty. So a, so a Christian, so we can see how the idea of liberation comes into Christianity from Judaism. Judaism believes that, that God freed him from being subject to the whims of earthly rulers by, uh, by making him his own the God's slave. The Christian believe that Jesus made him free from not from earthly rulers but from the evil powers that rule the, that rule the earth. Uh, the true creation from death, sin, and hell. So, and by extension, so there was always this thrust within Christianity, even when in the Middle Ages, when uh, when autoc when autocracy and uh, uh, became very very in, in time and place when uh, autocracy became very very heavy indeed, there was always this thrust that says um, that that was for liberty 
uh, because there's only a limited amount of despotism that can that can be uh, that can be conducted if if both rule if both despot and subject believe that they both um, go to heaven through the sacra- that believe that uh, that Jesus died for them both and any attempt to impose true despotism can be achieved only when uh, Christi- when Europe becomes somewhat uh, secular or when or when rulers learn how to departmentalize their mind yes on one hand they are devout Christian but in but they can still but that's in the religious part of their head but in the secular part of their head they think ah but 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 they can still uh squash the peasants into dust because reasons so only when we start sep- so uh and of course there's uh, uh when it comes to that cynical rulers may try to use and abuse uh church formations to uh to that but christianity by itself is in the middle ages not uh not the source of oppression but it's the only thing that keeps the oppression uh of the of the of the weak by the strong limited by a degree because it makes because because the the judaic teaching that passed through to the entirety of Christendom through Christianity, although somewhat transformed, made gave gave this part of the world something unique that nobody else had. It made oppression uh, inconsistent. It made it at least somewhat difficult to say, "Yes, I'm your superior and I'm your master." And I may treat you as I, as I may treat my horse, or my mule, or my or or, or the dirt under my boot, because you can no longer say it, and not at a certain point deny what you affirm in church, and the Jews and Christians, and the Jews and the Christians, for a while during the Middle Ages pretend or or don't understand that they have influenced each other and that since they live together they are influenced each other but this is all come to a head at the at the renaissance when uh, there's a certain there's a, a group of intellectuals called the humanists and the humanists wants to return to read the bible in the languages that in which it was written so in terms of the Christian Bible, of the uh, in terms of the uh, of the New Testament, that means reading the original Greek. But in terms of most other parts of the Bible, that means reading the Hebrew. So we have the he- the Hebraist movement, and the Hebraist movement is the greatest source of liberty thought in the early in the fifteenth and sixteenth century, uh, and greatest influence, especially on the emerging Protestant. Uh, churches. Uh, one of the most uh, popular books is the the Hebrew Republic by Carlo Sorgino, which oh, by the Italian author Carlo Sorgino, uh, and and another book by the same name 
by Petros Canaius of the uh, of the Netherlands, and they both portray a free republic living under the the laws of God, as practiced by the as practiced by the Jews, and this and they say this are uh, this is the state as it pleasing God as God ordered it. Why can't we have it? Why can't we have a free country? A free country, after all, that's what God wants. And how does I know that that's what God, that that's the kind of state that is pleasing unto God? Because those are the laws that He actually gave to a political nation in the past. All right, let's finish this episode. We're in episode nine. Let's finish it on that vein by finishing this uh, paragraph that I had begun earlier from Birch and Russell. I always come back to this because of its fascinating ability to profoundly summarize the events. The Catholic Church was derived from three sources. Its sacred history was Jewish, its theology was Greek, its government and canon law were, at least indirectly, Roman. The Reformation rejected the Roman elements, softened the Greek elements, and greatly strengthened the Judaic elements. It thus cooperated with the nationalist forces, which were undoing the work of social cohesion, which had been affected first by the Roman Empire than by the Roman Church. In Catholic doctrine, divine revelation did not end with the scriptures, continued from age to age through the medium of the, ch- of the Church, to which, therefore, it was the duty of the individual su- to submit his private opinions. Protestants, on the contrary, rejected the Church as a vehicle of revelation. Truth was to be sought only in the Bible, which each man could interpret for himself. If men differed in their interpretation, there was no divinely appointed authority to decide the dispute. In practice, the state claimed the right that had formerly belonged to the church, but this was a usurp. This was a usurpation. Usurpation. Thank you, Isaac. In Protestant theory, there should be no earthly intermediary between the soul and God. The effect, the effects of this change are momentous. Truth was no longer to be ascertained by consulting authority, but by inward meditation. There was a tendency quickly developed towards anarchism in politics and a religion towards mysticism. So. To talk about this early onset of the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation, and before that, to speak at greater length in the Dark Ages, we're going to return in episode 10. Our episode is tentatively titled The Great Unpersoning, the Medieval Fusion, and the Birth of Modern Liberty, which we will talk about all these issues and more. Thanks for joining us here with Joseph and Isaac at the Iron Rod. Wow.